but we are back for another Tuesday, and we have a name now. Yes, we do. We're no longer anonymous uh, live streamers. There you go. We have a new YouTube channel that we've set up called Nuance with Mike Scala and Jay Carter, because what we do on this live stream is have a nuanced discussion about what's going on in the world and the state of New York and local politics. And we also bring on very special guests as we have again with us this week. So without further ado, I am Mike Scala, joined of course by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip hop artist, and he's the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Timid? What's going on, Mike? How's it going this week? Yeah, things, are, things are going good. Business is good, you know, working and just uh, staying busy. That's what's up, that's what's up. We've got a very special guest with us, Steve Bihar former counsel in the New York State Senate, as well as the New York City Council. What's going on, Steve? Hey, good to be here. Appreciate yeah. you joining us. Definitely wanted to have a lawyer. I know, uh, Jay, you got some kind of pushback last week because I was a lawyer speaking lawyerly things. Now we have two lawyers. Yeah, right? Yeah, and it's going to be on a similar topic. We're going to bring up a similar topic. Right. There is definitely more to say on this row issue. And I think it was it's good to have someone who knows the law and knows the Constitution with us here this week. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So do we have a light topic or is this just all serious this time? The world is very bleak, Mike. You can't always get through light topics. Yeah. I guess but it's a relative scale, right? We can start with something relatively lighthearted. Relatively light. Well, um, well, I know you're not a, a, a fan. I, I wonder if um, if Steve's a fan. Are you a, are you a Star Trek fan, Steve? I really only watched the the first uh, TV show, the series, and the movies, and I didn't watch like Deep State, not Deep State Nine, and all that other stuff was uh, kind of uh, out of out of my world, but. But my my last boss, my um, my councilman Barry Gredenchik, his brother was Rom, um, in uh, in one of those, and here's my uh, favorite girl. She's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just I'll just give you my favorite girl. Say hello, and then we're on Facebook Live. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> give you a look. That's my that's my favorite girl. That's my niece. <laughs> Hello, uh, Thank yes, you. Bye. Right, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ram. Okay. On. Okay. On so he yeah, was he, he was the brother of Ram, and um, so people always used to come up to us and uh, and and say, oh, "I'm a huge Star Trek fan." Yeah, it's you know there. I just mentioned it because there was a new uh, a new series launched this past week. So uh, I knew Mike's not a real big fan of Star Trek. So. Yeah, I'm. You know, the new stuff is not mine either. Well, I was the, uh, I was you know thing. Mr. Spock and Scotty and and Chekhov and uh, right. uh, so <laughs> I'm showing my age. Yeah. Well, Did this one Star Trek and Star Wars is that kind of rare. Say supposed, what? Is, is that like a rare thing? Are you supposed to pick a side between Star Wars and Star Trek, or do people like both generally? I think people there there is a hard line for a lot of people, but I you know I always grew up with both. You know, and then they serve two different purposes. You know, right? There's more there's more adventure uh, and spirituality type of ideas in Star Wars, and then in Star Trek, it's more moral dilemmas and stuff. At least how it's supposed to be, and not just like big explosions and things. Um, yeah, humanity questions and types of things. Um, so some of the 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 newer series more recently is has changed more towards like a lot of big explosions and like just flashy space battles instead of like getting to the meat of what what Steve used to watch um, the originals. Um, but there was a new series that just released this past week called uh, I forget Star Trek. Uh, I forget what the name of it is, but this one actually seems promising because the first episode kind of follows that original series types of flow and this is the captain who was kirk's captain so it takes place before kirk took over that was pike oh, right absolutely was pike yeah there you go <laughs> oh, Shatner looks great if you've seen him he's in his 90s and yeah. yeah yeah pike ultimately in the in the the star trek with kirk 
something happened to him and he was he basically only had like his upper body in his head with little lights saying yes or no right right and and that that even shows up in this first episode because um he's kind of traumatized by this vision of that future wow yeah interesting but, and 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 just um you might cut my feed after i say this but uh -oh. i've never seen a star wars movie not one of them wow there you go wow he's gonna cut me off right now i'm gone <laughs> no it's all good i saw part of one and i believe i walked out in it because it just wasn't my thing wow you're surrounded jay <laughs> apparently apparently um well if if you're you know if you like the old one um the new series is called star trek strange new worlds first okay. episode might be something that you you know you vibe with i will it's check is that, is that netflix or is that uh Where's that um, it's a Paramount. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll do a De Novo review and see if we like it as well. <laughs> Speaking of that, I did want to talk more about the Roe v. Wade reversal. Now, of course, we want to make clear that this was a draft opinion, which was unprecedented really in Supreme Court history that this leaked. And apparently there's an investigation to see who leaked it. But it's not the final decision. We are told that in a few months, or maybe a little bit more than a month now, this is going to come out, but it may look different than the version that we saw. But all we have is what we saw. So obviously, the concern, which is well-founded, is based on what's in that draft opinion. Now, since this has come out, I've heard a lot about the concern that gay marriage and even possibly interracial marriage could be overturned as a result of the same reasoning that's in this decision. Last week, I talked about the right to contraception and the right to intimate contact with the partner because the reasoning that decided those cases is really the same as the reasoning that was used to overturn abortion rights in this draft opinion. So to me, that was very alarming right away that the same exact rationale could be used to overturn these other rights. Now, these rights come from the right to privacy. There's something called the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which protects liberty interests. So when we think of privacy, when we think of our liberty, we think of all these things. When you get into gay marriage and interracial marriage, those cases were decided along those same lines as well. So there is a valid concern that they could be affected, but there was an additional component, which is why I didn't bring them up, up initially. So I did want to talk about that a little bit, and, and Steve could uh, expand on it. There's an equal protection component there. Now, the 14th Amendment is a very versatile amendment. has a lot of clauses. It was enacted after the Civil War to give rights to Black people, but it, it's been used really as the most powerful, I believe, of all the amendments since. And you have an equal protection clause in there as well as a due process clause. So the equal protection clause stands for this idea that people should be treated the same. Different groups of people should have the same rights as other groups of people. And of course, there's a whole body of constitutional law surrounding that, but that's the premise behind it. When you start looking at interracial marriage and same-sex marriage, it was decided on those liberty interests and those privacy interests that we talked about, but it was also decided on this equal protection analysis, which is that you shouldn't treat different groups of people differently. If you're telling... Uh, heterosexual couples and white couples that can get married, you should not be telling gay couples and uh, interracial couples that they should not get married. So you can't treat them differently when it comes to that. Now, one thing that was interesting about that is they looked at the right to marry generally, and there was an argument in these cases that you shouldn't only look at the right to marry. We talked about in the abortion case, how they looked at the history of abortion rights in the United States and even before there was a US. And they talked about how the right to abortion was not a right, it wasn't implicit in our idea of liberty and so, so on and so forth. They went on for pages about that. When it comes to marriage, there was an argument that you shouldn't look at the right to marriage, you should look at the right to interracial marriage, or you should look at the right to same-sex marriage. And if you look at it that narrowly, you could make those same arguments. You could say that, if you look at the history of the U.S. in the very old days, even before the was the U.S., uh, like they did in the abortion case, we didn't have those rights. There was no right to interracial marriage. There certainly was no right to same-sex marriage. And so if you want to decide it on those very narrow grounds, you could make that same kind of rationale, same kind of analysis. Uh, but those cases were not actually decided with that. That was, reject, that was proposed and rejected by the Supreme Court in those cases, originally at least. And what they said, we're not going to look at the right in terms of interracial marriage 
or same-sex marriage, we're gonna look at just the right to marry. And then we're gonna say, okay, do you have a fundamental right to marry? Yes, is it implicit in our idea of liberty? Yes, okay, there's also this equal protection clause since we have the right to marry generally, we can't tell certain people they can and certain people they can't. And they talk about the interplay between a due process clause and equal protection clause because as you can see, they're, they're kind of related, right? If you have this idea of liberty and marriage is tied to this idea of liberty, well, then it also affects our liberty and, and, and violates our rights if you tell me I can't do it because I'm of a certain group. So that's where we were with those cases. That's why I didn't bring those up when I talked about it last week. But I think there is a valid concern that they could open that door because like I said, they were decided on those due process grounds. And also they could look at it more narrowly and say, you know what, we're gonna look at the history, not just of marriage, but we're gonna look at the history of interracial marriage. We're gonna look at the history of same-sex marriage. And just like we said that the history of abortion was not kind to the idea. Well, if you go back to the dark ages, guess what? They didn't allow same-sex marriage either. So they could do that too. I wanted to bring that up that they're not exactly the same, but there is a lot of overlap and the concerns there are valid. Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, my, you know, full and fair disclosure, my wife is black. Um, you know, I, my wife's a Haitian immigrant. We're, we're married almost a year. We've been together 10 years. And, you know, we're talking about ancient history. You know, the Loving case was in 1967. Right. I mean, you're talking, you know, 55, 56 years ago. I, I in, in most states in this country, I couldn't marry my wife, which is insane. Yep. And um, so we don't have to go back to the dark ages. We go back to dark ages of the 60s. Um, and I think what's troubling to me about the draft decision is that um, they're basically saying that Alito was basically saying that there is this, there is no white right to privacy, that it's a fiction and that it's made up and therefore you don't have this right. Yet um, all these other decisions were based on that same fiction. Right. So you have this right to privacy, you can marry who you want, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's interracial marriage. Um, you have the right to use contraception. Was the same, it was the same premise. Um, the, the Alito side of this case said there's no mention of abortion in, this, in the constitution. There's no mention of of gay marriage, there's no mention of inter interracial marriage. marriage. There's no, there's no, there's not no mention of uh, of, of uh, what do you call it? contraception. So is um, marriage from, in it at all? No, no. And and the point being that um, if if we're basing this one decision on uh, Roe v. Wade on this idea that there is a right to privacy in the Constitution, if you say well that case was decided wrong. There is no right to privacy in the constitution. All these other issues are ready to be taken down. Now, Alito kind of tap danced around that and said, well, you know, yeah, he said that, well, you know, yeah, you're right, but it, this is different because this is about a potential life, which again is a fiction because there's no talk of a potential life in the constitution either. So um, I think that it's a very slippery slope uh, once Roe v. Wade gets, uh, gets overturned, which I think it will. Um, and I think you saw something very scary just a couple of weeks ago when um, Senator Braun from Indiana said that he believes that the states should decide whether interracial marriage should be, should be okay. Right. I also wanted to talk about Lawrence v. Texas, which was the case that they had anti-sodomy laws at the time, but it's really broader than that. It's really about just intimate conduct with a partner without the government telling you you can and can't do in your bedroom. And if you read the case on there, you have dissenters who wanted to keep it illegal or, or keep the states to have the ability to make it illegal. And what they were also doing a very similar thing as to what happened in with Alito in the abortion case where they looked at the old history and this is my criticism last week they looked at the old history they said well there was no right to have whatever kind of sex you want uh, in the old days but the majority criticized them in that case this was 2003 they said you can't just look at the old history you have to look at the current times as well or at least go back I don't know the past 50 years I mean you can't stop in the year 1900 and start in the year 
in the 13th century. I mean, and again, I understand that the idea of it has to be deep rooted in history, but that doesn't mean you're blind to more modern history. It doesn't mean you only have to look at the old times, because if you're doing that, you could uh, outlaw anything that we've uh, evolved on in society, right? I mean, we didn't go back to slavery. I understand there are, I'm being a little- Sex with a minor. Because we have a constitutional amendment on that. But my point is that anything in theory, if you're looking at the old history, and you can go back to the to dark ages, right? On, on any of these issues. Yeah, I mean, you, you say that. I mean, even, you know, you go to the 1800s, sex with a minor was normal. You know, uh, someone in their 30s or whatever would routinely marry someone 12 or 13 years old. So if you're going to look at that as a standard, then yeah, without coming into the modern times, then yeah, that can be a problem. You have to have context, right? And I think at the heart of this is the struggle between the originalists and those who think that you have to look at the Constitution as it was written and not really put any historical context aside, aside I guess, from old history. Um, and then you have people who think it's a living, breathing document and uh, changes with the times, you know, and I think even if you're taking an originalist point of view, you can't look at just the 13th century because that was before there was a constitution. So that's not being an originalist, that's really being regressive. I, I mean, the idea uh, of being an originalist, the originalists thought that Jay was three fifths of a person. Right. I mean, do, are, are those the, you know, we, we saying we have, we can't evolve from that. Right, right, absolutely. So, yeah, that's, um, I think what we, since we're talking about this, there was a, a little bit of a feedback we got from last week's uh, discussion. And one of the fears that you had, or you were told not to put out the article that you had written about it, taking this from a very, a very um, legal point of view and taking your opinion and, and the emotion out of it, just looking at the argument itself. And you were warned that, um, you know, you might come off a little bit cold or people might feel a certain kind of way. One of the feedback that I that I had received off of that was something along that lines, but it was kind of misinterpreted. And so I think we want to be clear that you're, you're looking at it from the, just the specific argument and then how bad of an argument it is to that they use to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. And, you know, because it was it was also this, oh, there's three guys on the panel talking about abortion, this, you know, and I get that. However, from a legal point of view, you know, you're talking about the actual law argument of it, you know, male or female, uh, as a lawyer, that shouldn't, that shouldn't matter, you're still interpreting the law. So. And to be clear, I am pro-choice, and I think I made very clear last week that this was a horrible decision, not just for the right. legal, because of the damage it's going to do to people across the country. So from a policy perspective, I disagree with it entirely, but I was focusing on the legal side of it because I wanted to bring that to the table. And that was something that wasn't really missing, but I felt that I was I could amplify that side of, of the argument because that is my expertise, that's my background. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, And also, by the way, I did that, and I mentioned this again last week, but I did that, I took that approach to illustrate that the justices who signed on to this opinion backed into their decision. So what I was saying is that because the legal reasoning is so shaky and really inconsistent, it doesn't make sense that they were not doing their jobs as Supreme Court justices in interpreting the Constitution. They had an agenda. They were just anti-abortion. And so they said, let's try to find a way to justify this decision because we don't like abortion. That's really why I chose to pick apart the constitutional argument to show that they were not sincere in what they were doing right and and you know if if they're coming through with their own agenda i mean that also raises questions at least in my mind on you know their ability to actually be uh, in the position that they're in they're going to come in with that kind of agenda and you know what I mean, elections have consequences and i wanted to clarify this as well i know i talked last week about local elections mattering more here's where federal elections matter here's where voting for the president matters look who's on the supreme court now and this could be our supreme court for a generation or more it's a super majority of conservatives that's an issue right so everyone who said we wanted to vote for trump because we liked his attitude no nonsense demeanor whatever their reasoning was it has real consequences like people hopefully are second guessing that at this point well the people that said but her emails the pro-choice people who said but her emails, um, I, I hope they're regretting their but her emails vote. Right. Yeah. No, and, yeah. and you know what? I mean, and I don't want to get too much into presidential politics here, but there were just so many people who were saying it was time to shake things up. People who are not really Republicans per se, uh, they just were like, you know, it's time for a change in direction. Let's 
let's go in another way. It was like almost like a troll vote. But my point now is that it has real consequences in, and it's going to affect a lot of people's lives very directly in a way that's, I think, adverse even to the interests of many of those trolls. Absolutely. Well, I, I think some people don't, unfortunately, take these things seriously. And, um, you know, we should have learned the lesson back in, in 2000 because, um, you know, we, people clearly shouldn't have voted for George W. Bush and what we get out of that, we got two decades of war and $7 trillion at, at a cost of $7 trillion and, and thousands, tens of thousands of American lives and you know, probably half a million lives on the ground. Absolutely. And I think um, that was the, the moment where a lot of people started to pay a little bit more attention to uh, elections when, they, when you know, Bush got into office and the resulting part of that and people were like, well, okay, maybe a vote does matter more than um, we might think. But this is why history does matter. And, and again, not just ancient history, but recent history, right? Absolutely. Uh, don't even look at the recent history. And, and a lot of people who are voting, who voted in 2016, were too young to remember even Obama's election. They, they right. lived their entire lives, or as, as, as long as they could remember, um, living under a Democratic president, living under Barack Obama. So when it came time for 2016, they wanted a candidate who was going to be perfect for them. And they were willing to either stay home or vote another way because it wasn't perfect. They never really saw the consequences of what could happen if the wrong person gets into office. That's a problem. People need to be more cognizant of that. Even if it was before your time, you need to be aware of what happened and what can happen uh, if things go a certain way. Well, I mean, you can go back in history, um, you know, from, you know, whether Lincoln had uh, Johnson as his vice president, and had he chosen someone else that was potentially better after he was assassinated, where we'd be as a country. Um, you can look back in closer history, 1968, I, I believe if, if Bobby Kennedy hadn't been shot after winning the California primary, that he would have won the presidency in 68 and would have gotten out of us out of Vietnam and we would have never had um, we would have never had uh, Watergate and what how different would this country be I, I always look at that like 1968 election is probably the most uh, crucial and uh, and and you know was basically a swing of yeah. the of the half that half of the oh, century. Yeah. 1968, I think, is probably the most critical year period of the 20th century. You look at uh, Martin Luther King being assassinated. You look at Bobby Kennedy, you know, the, uh, the LBJ's uh, successors election that Nixon ended up winning. Uh, very consequential year in history. But, but imagine, imagine American history without, the, you know, without Vietnam. Imagine American history without, um, without Watergate. I mean, I think we still have distrust of government 50 years later after Watergate that, yeah. you know, before that there was, a, you know, before Watergate, people thought, okay, government is a means to do good. And it was, it, it, over time, it was moving in the right direction, giving people rights, um, whether it was women's right to vote, civil rights, and it was a slog, don't get me wrong, but um, you know, we, we had Social Security, we had Medicare, all these things that government could do. Suddenly, after Watergate, we've had this 50 years, don't trust government. And, and Reagan even said it. He said, government's not the solution, it's the problem. And yeah. this all relates to, to, to Watergate. Didn't he say and, something like the, the, the scariest words in English language or I'm here from the government to help or something like that? Or exactly. From to help. Exactly. Watergate also led to a lot of distrust of lawyers. And this is why we had to take, you know, the ethics bar and all these different different things because people started disliking lawyers after Watergate too. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was really a pivotal time, both from the Vietnam War and from Watergate. And I, like I said, I mean, we will obviously never know, but I think Bobby Kennedy... Um, neither neither one of them happens. The escalation of Vietnam never happens, um, and we don't have that, you know, that 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 pain that we've had since then. Um, haven't learned from it, but with that that pain is still there. And then, of course, Watergate isn't there. We'd, we'd be a very different country. And then, same thing, two thousand. Without, um, you know, if if 
Gore, who actually, I'm convinced, won that election, becomes president, um, I don't think that we have 9-11 because George W. Bush ignored everything that was, all the evidence that something was up and he was more worried about, you know, about gay rights. And then at the same time, after those planes hit the building, um, you know, we had, in my opinion, a huge opportunity. The world came together. It doesn't happen very often. I mean, there were, people were having, you know, candlelight vigils across the world for us from, from Paris to Tehran. And um, George W. Bush took all that goodwill and threw it in the garbage when he attacked Afghanistan, which should have been a 90-day mission and stayed there. And then a year later, we go into Iraq and stay there for 20 years. And all our goodwill was gone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, think about that next time you vote. Yeah, I mean, because I, I doubt, I mean, we, we don't know, but, you know, I doubt Gore would have, have gone the exact same route of, of taking us into like Iran, uh, Iraq for 20 years. That was Daddy's um, part too. No, um, yeah, that was the problem with, you know, he, Bush, Bush and Cheney, were hell-bent on, on getting revenge for what Saddam Hussein had done under daddy's regime, where I think Gore would have done what was right, go into Afghanistan, root out the Al-Qaeda, which basically took 90 days. We were, we were in Afghanistan and took out Kandahar, which is really where the bulk of that was, in 90 days. We should have been out of Afghanistan in 90 days, right. but we were there for 20 years. Right. Well, let's take it to local politics in New York, because there is a bill that's being pushed now that would freeze campaign accounts. And it's being criticized for potentially being unconstitutional. I want to get your thoughts on it. But the idea is, if you have this campaign war chest from being in office and you are convicted of a crime, or if you're resigning from office due to allegations of criminal wrongdoing, or if you're resigning from office and there happen to be allegations of wrongdoing, you lose your ability to spend that campaign money that you have. Um, now, very transparently, this is an effort to stop Andrew Cuomo from using his campaign war chest. Of course, he resigned from office while there were allegations of wrongdoing. And he has all this money, millions of dollars in the bank. He's put commercials on TV. He's using it in accordance with his rights. They want to stop him from doing that and others, I guess, in similar situations. Do we think this is constitutional or do we think it's a good idea? Well, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of places to poke holes in this. But um, like you said, th this is really the I'm afraid of Andrew Cuomo. And, um, and, and whether you're afraid of him or not, or whether that's a good idea or not, um, we still have to follow the Constitution. Um, the first issue that, that I see with this is the allegations part. I mean, we live in a, in a country that we believe in due process and you're innocent until proven guilty. So they're sitting here saying that they want to take away rights of yours just because you've been accused of something. Um, so that's the first thing that's wrong. The second thing is free speech, because, you know, using that campaign fund is Andrew Cuomo's free speech. And it's his right to use it. And to take that away because he's allegedly been accused of something doesn't seem to, um, to make sense. And frankly, and I know we, we spoke about this earlier, even if you're convicted, let's say you're convicted, you do your time, um, you should be able to use that. We talk about being a society that's in favor of rehabilitation and second chances, but we're sitting here saying, well, you know, you can't rehabilitate yourself. You, you don't have, we're taking away your right to free speech. You can't, you know, go on and do good things because of some allegations or some conviction. And what about wrongful convictions? We talked about this last week and we did a right. poll where 100% of our respondents said that the government had a responsibility to, to ensure that people wrongfully convicted can be exonerated. Well, right. just because you're convicted doesn't necessarily mean you were guilty. I mean, I know that's our system and we do follow that, but I think that there is a valid concern that someone can be wrongfully convicted. And this is why people who are convicted of crimes don't lose all of their rights, right? I mean, the system isn't perfect and we still do have a constitution to respect regardless of who the person is. So do we think someone who's even accused of something should lose right. their right to speak? Um, 
it's easy to accuse someone of something. And I don't want to sound like allegations should not be taken seriously, but anyone who's resigning for office now, for any reason at all, what if someone were to get a job someplace else? What if someone wants to spend more time with their family? They're leaving office for whatever reason. Anyone can then put an allegation out against them under this and freeze their ability to use their campaign funds. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I think that's just an accusation is, is very, very flimsy. It's, it's too open. There's no, you know, if, if they're trying to do something like that, it should be something a little bit more specific that's more concrete. But an allegation, like any, you know, I can, you know, Mike's, Mike is anti-Star Wars. That's my allegation. He hates all Star Wars people. You know, like, it, I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and, and they, they do specify it has to be criminal wrongdoing. But even so, an allegation is just that, an allegation. And when you're in politics... People do have agendas. They come after you. And you have to read into that as well, that anyone who's in a position of prominence is going to have people accusing them of things, whether right or wrong. And just because there's an accusation out there, does that mean that the person should lose their rights? I do think that's a violation of their constitutional rights. There's their due process and their First Amendment right to speak, right? And, and you're allowed to, I mean, we have a member of the assembly who was a convicted felon and is now serving. And we have another convicted felon who's actually running for the assembly uh, as we speak. Now, I'm, I'm not gonna you know, support someone or not support someone and not get into the political side of that. But the idea is that you know, they should have that opportunity because we, we want people to rehabilitate themselves. We want second chances. Let the people in those particular districts decide through the voting booth. All right. so and no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it's, it's, we seem to be, you know, we, we seem to be con contradicting, or progressives seem to be, which I consider myself a progressive, seem to be contradicting themselves. Do we want people to have second chances? Do we want people to, you know, pay their debt to society and come back and be productive? They're saying, well, well yeah, except if uh, he's going to run against me, then I don't want him to have that. Right. And here's the thing. They tried to convict Cuomo of some of the stuff and they failed. All those cases were thrown out. So they would have loved for him to have a criminal conviction on his record. So then they could write the bill in a better way, frankly, that would say, if you were convicted, you lose this ability. But they couldn't do that because he wasn't convicted. So now they're saying if there was an accusation against you. And that's really where it falls apart. So yeah, is this by being brought by progressives? Yes. Yep. And, uh -huh. and the point is to me is that let's say Let's just use, you know, forget about Cuomo. Let's use someone else who is convicted. And he goes or she goes and does his debt to society. Then what happens when that person comes out? Right. 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 And in New York, we believe that a person should have that second chance. For example, once they're off parole, they can vote again. Right. We don't right. disenfranchise right. our felons indefinitely like they do in some other places. So and they can run and they, they some have won, have been successful. And right. you know what? Let's I'm all willing if the people are willing to give that person a second chance to let them have a second chance. Right. And and this something like this going through the way that it's written would be would, would make the political landscape pretty much hellish because then it would just be weaponized uh, at every election, at every turn. Everybody would be uh, be accused of something just to, to stop them from using it be like a course of you know manner of action just exactly right it would, right it would be par for the course right one of your opponents is running let's make sure there's an allegation out there to freeze his campaign account that's what happened all the time right so be very dangerous yeah not a very progressive thing to propose progressives <laughs> no, and, and i have to be honest this is part of the working families party questionnaire this year for state level offices. They were asking if you would support this bill. And I understand the principles behind it. I just don't like the way it's put together. Mm. This is essentially the, I'm afraid of Andrew Cuomo bill. Mm. And, and that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that, um, that Andrew Cuomo has enough support in the state. Um, and I don't know if he does or not, but they're afraid that he has enough to go into run either as an independent or even run in a democratic primary and win. And I've got a great segue on that. But before we segue into the next slightly related topic, I want to put the poll out because the poll was about this bill that we were going to ask this week. 
So the question is, do you think that politicians should lose the ability to spend their campaign money if they've been accused of criminal misconduct? <coughs> and, and let me add, before the segue, let me ask um, on, on that point uh, and look at it from the other side, um, since this is nuanced. Um, whereas from the article that, that uh, we read, it said this, if we take their, their, their um, you know, their reasoning at face value. And they said, this is basically to prevent people from, you know, from bad actors basically to, to curb this. So what do, what kind of things do you do to prevent, you know, uh, politicians performing this criminal behavior or, you know, hold them accountable. Um, and, and, you know, when they keep coming back and doing things like, you know, it was commonly said like South, Southeast Queens politicians, you know, they either die in office or they go to prison. So that's kind of an issue, I think, for representation. And shouldn't they be held to a higher standard? Well, I've always believed that, um, you know, for example, I support the police. But I believe when police do wrong, since they have a special place in society where they're supposed to serve and protect us, that they should be held to a higher standard and be punished harsher than the average Joe in the street. I believe the same thing about politicians, that you know, they are elected to serve. And um, if you're, that's, that should be your only reason to run for office is that you wanna help people and that you wanna serve. And if you take that trust that the voters have entrusted you with and you try to enrich yourself, um, you should pay a higher price than you know, some kid who stole a backpack on, on the seven train. And uh, so that's where we do that. We just should have harsh penalties for people who um, are entrusted to serve and entrusted to, to protect society. And then they, they misuse that trust. I 100% agree. I agree. I wanna shout out James, Justine and Tracy for watching along with us. And James actually has some questions in the chat. I think going back to Lawrence v. Texas case we discussed, which was about sodomy, he asked, how do people know what's going on in someone's bedroom? And you know, basically like, shouldn't that just be private? Why would it be, we even be questioning that and how would we even know what people were doing? Which I agree with. In that particular case, they were actually caught in the act. And believe it or not, Texas had an anti-sodomy law as did many other states. I think the entire South really did at that time. Uh, you know, but this was part of the right to privacy that we have. It's, it's implicit in the 14th Amendment in the Due Process Clause. Our liberty interests are protected, and that includes the right for government not to tell us what we can do in our own bedrooms. All right. So not, not to derail your segue, what, what, let's, let's get back to, to the segue there. Right. So we were talking about where Steve brought up the idea that Andrew Cuomo could potentially run and even possibly win again for governor. He may have the opportunity to run in the Democratic primary because lawsuits are ongoing on what we're doing with the elections this year. Now, we had talked about last week, the lines for Congress and state Senate were deemed unconstitutional. We're redrawing all those lines. There are now two election dates, two primary election dates. This is June 28th and August. Was it August 23rd, Steve? That's right. Yeah, I believe so. August 23rd. So as of now, as of this moment, this is going to change, you know, day by day. As of now, the race for governor and for assembly is on for June 28th. In August, we've got the new Senate districts and the new congressional districts, and we'll have primaries for them. And then, of course, the general election is still in November. Um, there is a lawsuit, though, now in Steuben County, which is kind of ground zero for all. This reminds me of the Seinfeld finale when everyone went to that place in Massachusetts is like a small town, all of a sudden became like a, the star of the world. Steuben County, all eyes are on Steuben County in upstate New York now, because this is where the judge decided that these lines were unconstitutional and the case was just brought in on the assembly lines as well. So currently the assembly lines have not been impacted by this, but it's all the same process. So you would think that they would. A lawsuit brought by a colleague of mine named Aaron Foldenauer on behalf of the Young Republicans Club in Steuben filed this lawsuit. And it said it's basically the same thing, that the assembly lines had to be thrown out and also redrawn for the August primary. The concern that the judge raised, though, is that you're not going to have time at this point because it's already 
May. It's getting into the middle of May. In the other case, they had two months of appeals and they had said that you had to draw these lines by August in time for this late August primary. He, he said at oral argument, if I draw out these assembly lines, will we have time to even get new assembly lines in time for an August election? It could be, and this was an interesting idea that he threw out there at oral argument. The judge said he, can, he was concerned that you could have an at-large assembly election in New York, meaning constitutionally you have to have 150 assembly members in the state, but we wouldn't have any districts and there wouldn't be time to redraw the district line. So you would have a, a, a constitutionally mandated election for assembly with no lines in place, meaning I guess what, a thousand people or more could be running for assembly in the top 150 would get elected? That would be insane. But that was a concern that the judge raised uh, if he threw out the lines. My question, though, is why wouldn't he? It was the same exact process as the other lines. I, I think, you know, you and I spoke uh, about a week ago about the old uh, equity theory and law of latches, um, which is, essentially means that um, while you might have a, a, uh, an actual case or something to argue, that you waited too long to get the um, the remedy that you're asking for. And I, I wonder if we're close enough to that June election that the judge could rely on that old uh, ideology of uh, idea of uh, a latches. Right, common law doctrine that basically says the interest of justice would be served by not ruling on this, right? It would be too prejudicial of an outcome. Well, it's, a, it's basically saying that the, the, there is too long of a delay in asserting your right that um, that you can't get the remedy that you're asking for. And it's I mean, right. exactly. The, the, your remedy is basically outweighed by the idea that you took too long and it would, you know, in this case, throw a wrench in the whole plan that leads to an absurd result in the judge's opinion. Um, so he's gonna have to balance that now, I guess, right? It, it, because he already ruled that it, and it was upheld by the Court of Appeals. This was, this was an unconstitutional process. So you have to kind of assume that the assembly lines are also unconstitutional. So now you have to weigh that against this question of, well, was this case brought too late? I mean, it is within the statute of limitations, so that's not the issue, but this is common law of latches, as Steve points out, does that preclude the recovery? Ira Foldenauer had an interesting uh, quote. He was in the paper as quoted as saying that basically the people who, uh, who designed this, who got us into this mess, who, who, who are the architects behind this unconstitutional process are now complaining that there's no remedy. Interesting idea, yeah. But I mean, it still the, raises the question, why did they wait till now where they brought a suit claiming that the procedure was wrong for the Senate and the congressional lines long before this? Right. It seemed like just an opportunity that someone jumped on and said, oh, wait a minute, why was the assembly excluded from this? We should also file a lawsuit to get in on this. And they did. So we'll see what happens. But I brought up Cuomo because I've been raising the point and I actually tweeted at the Board of Elections. I tweeted the city and state reporter and uh, I tweeted, I believe, uh, Ali Najmi, who's an election lawyer, and also Aaron Foldenauer, who's a lawyer in this case. He, I didn't tweet him, but he saw my tweet and he liked it. So he's now aware of this point that I'm raising, which is, shouldn't the state petitions have to be redone it, with new congressional lines? Because to run for statewide office, you have to get signatures from half of the congressional districts in the state. So how are you going to say that the congressional lines are unconstitutional, but accept these petitions which were done under the old lines which were, that were thrown out? You would think that at least there's an argument to be made that if you're going to have this primary in August anyway, the governor's race should be moved to August to give people the chance to petition with these newly drawn congressional lines. I'm surprised no one's gone to court. I'm surprised no one's gone to court and say, you know, just bring out the statute and says to qualify for statewide office, you need to get, uh, is it seven congressional districts? What's the the, the half, half. half of them? Half. So you have to have signatures from half the 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 congressional seats, um, but they don't because we don't have congressional seats. Well, here's the thing. It's actually a very small number. I believe it's 100 signatures from each congressional district. So I'm sure even when they redraw the lines, they're going to qualify. Unless you find someone who doesn't, then you really have a, a very compelling case that they should be given a chance to petition again. But let's just say 
everyone happens to qualify even under the new lines because it's such a small requirement, you can make the argument that it's really moot. I mean, why are you throwing out the whole election over a moot point? Nobody was damaged by this. All the petitions that were in do comply with either set of lines, right? But you can't show just like you, you know, you have to show you have X amount of signatures. And for statewide, you have to show that you have signatures in X amount of congressional districts. If you can't show that, to me, you should be thrown off the ballot. Well, but what if you still can show? What if they redraw the lines and you still have those signatures? Because there was a decision on the independent nominating petitions from that same judge, McCall. So he's the star of election law these days. He made a decision saying that that petitioning period is not going to be affected, that even though we have no idea what the congressional lines are as of now, that period is ongoing. And in theory, by the time that period is up, this is to get your name on the ballot as an independent candidate for a statewide office. By the time that period is up, we will know what the new congressional lines are and the candidates, they can have like 10 days really. Uh, they just have to make sure at the end that they have enough from each congressional district, which I think is wild, right? Because like, so as of now, your petition, you don't know where the signatures have to come from. Basically, you gotta just try to get them everywhere, right? But, right, you know. but, but we know that the, we, we know that, you know, Kathy Hochul and, and Tom Swazi and Jamani Williams cannot show that they have signatures from half the congressional districts. As of now. As of now, but but their name's being put on the ballot now. It's too long to take them off the ballot. It, it's, that, that's a statute of limitations issue, right? All petitions are presumptively valid unless they're invalidated. And then there's a very tight timeline. You only have uh, two weeks from when petitions are due in order to file a court case to try to invalidate a petition. So that I think will be barred by the statute of limitations to retroactively say that they have to be off the ballot. But there's still, I mean, it's, it's like kind of uncharted territory because we're not used to the scenario where the lines are invalidated and everything that we're doing statewide is based off these lines now that don't exist. Um, so this could affect Andrew Cuomo because if he wants to run in a Democratic primary, there is a possibility via a lawsuit that the Democratic primary and the Republican primary and all the really all primaries for governor get moved to August, in, in which case he would have the chance to petition and get on the primary ballot. Yeah, no, I see that. And that would, uh, that would upset our folks that uh, proposed that law in the first place, yes. right? That's why they're proposing it. You <laughs> <laughs> have more time to spend uh, that money. A point also that to get on the ballot for governor, you don't have to petition. You can be nominated or designated by the party, which Kathy Hochul was. She never even petitioned. She was just at the party's convention, right? They just said she's a candidate for governor. So she doesn't even have petitions in, but it really would affect the petitions of uh, Swazi and Jumani. All right. To politicians on the ground who are, who are affected, who are trying to run, basically, in the meantime, get your numbers up as high as possible so that you could potentially fall into the, the right categories once the lines are drawn. So you can reach really, that 100 right. mark. And, and that is odd. I mean, I understand why the judge did this, because he is concerned about the timeline. And he's just saying, look, we can't, what are we going to do? We can't just push it off indefinitely. There are months of appeals happening. We have to just do something. And then he mentioned that the law has a very strict timeline that he's going to keep in place. But to tell candidates that we don't know where your lines are, just make sure you have enough from everywhere in any possible configuration of congressional lines that could be drawn. That's rough. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because they could get the numbers and then draw it. And then like in one district, you've got like, you know, 150 and the other one now you've got like, you know, 90. It's like where before it would have been, you know, cross the threshold. It's could like, you imagine yeah. that? Could you imagine if they actually start drawing congressional lines based on the number of signatures candidates got from each district to try to invalidate their petitions retroactively? Uh, that'd, be that'd be insane. Hey, man, you know what? After after these lines, I, I don't think anything is that outrageous. I mean, at the end of the, the day, this, I mean, we pushed the envelope and uh, the Democrats pushed the envelope and uh, they, they got a bit in the ass from it, essentially. Um, you know, the, the problem is that our lines aren't worse than Texas or Ohio or Florida. Um, you know, I've, I've, for a long, long time since I was a, uh, an undergrad political science student uh, at, at UAlbany, um, I remember my first year in Albany, I wrote a paper that I think we need national um, redistricting reform and maybe even a constitutional amendment requiring each state to have a nonpartisan uh, uh, redistricting commission. 
Well, we have that in New York and it didn't work. But this wasn't, if I, I didn't vote for that back in 2014. And if you remember, Mike, when this, when this referendum came up, um, they put it on the ballot as an independent redistricting commission and the courts ruled that they couldn't call it an independent redistricting because it wasn't independent. It was bipartisan. It was right. It, it was bipartisan, but it really, at the end of the day, as as it proved now, it really, it, it was partisan. It wasn't it got rejected, right? The legislature saw the lines and were like, "No, we're going to do it our own way." Exactly, which is not independent. It's basically we'll, <laughs> well give you a job if we like it. We'll do they, use they, it. They didn't have a right to present their lines. The legislature overruled them. So right. it ended up working. But I found it interesting that the judge decided that this was a constitutional amendment, at least for New York State, because the voters all approved it. If it wasn't passed as, a, as an amendment, right? It was just passed as a referendum. Right. But he, he interpreted it to be an actual constitutional amendment in New York. And, you know, if you look at the states, when I wrote that paper years ago, um, it shows how old I am, because at the time there was only one state that had um, an independent redistricting commission. Um, you want to guess what it was? Or uh, Louisiana. No. It wasn't Louisiana. <laughs> Louisiana, you know, I lived there for five years. It's not exactly yeah. the uh, state of reform. Right. Um, it, it was actually Iowa. Okay. Iowa was the only one. And um, I remember looking at the, the map, the congressional maps in Iowa, and they were basically straight lines. I mean, obviously not perfectly, but keep a city here, but they were straight lines. And then you look at our lines. I remember looking at our lines back then and um, there was a, a, a congressman from Brooklyn named Stephen Solars, whose district, I'm looking at Iowa and they're all kind of square and shaped like uh, you know squares and rectangles. And Solars district at the time looked like a snake running through Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was it was clear what was going on. There's a difference between Iowa and Brooklyn. Iowa is much more monolithic. So it's easier to draw lines that way without mm -hmm. tearing apart uh, demographic communities. Right. Right. Well, in a way, yeah. In, in a way, no. I mean, look what they do here in Queens. I mean, um, look at Richmond Hill, Ozone Park, South Ozone Park, which is, you know, it's a, a lot of South Asians, Indo-Caribbeans, yet they cut that up into four districts of, of assembly districts. Uh, at the end of the day, you can keep these, as the constitution says, concise and compact and keep communities together. Um, it that's doesn't have- the, Right, but I agree that that's an example of a district that's really gerrymandered beyond belief. But you could, if you were to draw the lines as exact rectangles in New York City, you would be breaking out communities, wouldn't you? You'd be doing more of that. Well, you, you work to keep the communities within those districts. They're not going to be, when I say rectangles, they're not like right. direct straight lines, but they're, they're, less they're enough that you can <laughs> see you. this is here, this is here, this is here. You might have Des Moines, so you have a little bit of a curve here or something like that. And I you, think, right. And I think the requirement that they be contiguous should be taken more seriously because yes. obviously New York is a, a city on water. And so you have very creative map touring where it's like, well, you can take a little bit of the beach or you can go a little bit on the water. You no, know, I think when it's when we say contiguous, we really mean, mean neighborhoods should be adjacent to other neighborhoods in their districts, not like well, something that's like here and way over there. Well, years ago, right. my congressman, Gary Ackerman, um, when, when, you know, and Gary's a good friend of mine, um, his his district ha was like two uh, different sized barbells with, right. with right. The, the bar in the middle because it had a, a, a nice section of Queens and then went along the Long Island Expressway and then had a nice section of, uh, of Suffolk County. Um, and, and the highway was the one that connected them. It's, it's ridiculous to do something. Yeah. Like that. If you look at the district that was the proposed uh, Senator Adabo district, uh, the one that he currently holds in the Senate, it looks like a microscope and broad channel is a specimen. Take a look at it, like the way it's drawn, it's, it's like <laughs> curvature of a natural microscope. It's very strange. It's, and you can tell this is a, an exceedingly political process, right? Just by looking at the yeah. map. Well, this, yeah. is, this is the point is that we, we need to get the politics out. We need to keep communities together. We need to make districts that are concise and compact. Um, and we should draw the lines with, with no interest in 
um, who's a Democrat, who's a Republican, and frankly, no interest where an elected official lives. If we draw the lines and two assemblymen live in the same district, so be it. Well, on that topic, what if we had an at-large assembly race? I might consider running. But we're going to have, what, the top 150 vote-getters in the state? That'll be like a real battle royal. Yeah, I, I might I might do that too, Mike. Right, that'll be fun. Like, like a WWE free-for-all. Cage match. You talk about yeah. no regard for where somebody lives. I mean, here you go. We can start, we can start campaigning in Steuben County. So, I mean, to... to, to to your point, um, as far as how they should be drawn, let me ask this, um, you know, the idea of taking the politics out of it and we're seeing the districts are being drawn um, with, you know, exceedingly political agendas behind them. Um, who should do the drawing then? It, it should be done by an independent com commission. And- um, Who appoints the commissioners? Right. It, it works differently in different states. And, and you can see, you can see Iowa, California. I mean, there's several states that do it right now. Um, and what is the best way to do it? It's a good question. I mean, I think that it's something that um, if New York went into it, we, we should look and see what would work best for us. But um, the point being is that the way we're doing it now just doesn't work. Mm. And other states are doing it and they're doing it better. And um, we should find out, you know, this is what I found out, Mike, maybe you came, came to the same conclusion when you worked in the state Senate. Um, when I worked in the Senate, when I worked at city council, one thing that New York and New York State, New York City seems to not do well is to look at what other jurisdictions do well and incorporate it into New York. That's, that's the United States in general. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it it isn't, it isn't, because there's other places that kind of see how things work and and they adopt it and they, they adopt and adapt it. We don't do that. There's almost this pounding your chest mentality, like we're New York and we don't have to do it the way, you know, Dallas does it or San Francisco does it. I did it that way though. When I was in the Senate as council and legislative director, I was tasked with coming up with legislation. And I think, okay, where am I going to get the ideas for these bills from? Some of that comes from constituents coming into the office with their issues. Some of it comes from the news. Some of it is just your own ideas that you had. A lot of it came from what are people doing in other states? What are other bills that are out there in other state legislatures? We passed, for example, the Senate passed a domestic violence advocate client privilege in New York. I wrote that legislation. I drafted the language for it. I got that from another state that was doing it. And I think, I think that's, I mean, that's progress. That's making things move forward. Like you look and see what's working and like incorporate that so that everything that's working starts to come to the forefront. I mean, it just makes a lot more sense. Well, we have the United States and increasingly with decisions like this draft Supreme Court one, we're becoming less and less united. And that's a problem. We wanna have a quote unquote nation of 50 independent countries. Right. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, it's, that's what's, it's kind of, uh, kind of scary in a sense that, um, you know, where we're at right now, and, you know, how, how polarized the agendas are, and what they're doing, what they're willing to do to, you know, overturn, you know, progress that we've made in the past to, to, to try to, you know, reach for that more perfect union, you know, when someone's got that different idea that, okay, well, no, we want it to be like it was this way. And, you know, that kind of, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of a, a you know. We now know what was meant by make America great again. Um, well, we knew, we knew what it meant then. It, it meant make it like it was, you know, when a certain, you know, uh, mindset was the majority. Was the Supreme Court justices who voted on this were appointed by that president and absolutely that same rationale in deciding the case. How absolutely, absolutely, that was that was all what it was. I mean, you know, things that we've decided in the past were you know no longer you know good you know uh, to do. They want to bring these things back, and so. You know, that was what Make America Great Again meant. And it spoke to those people in that in that pocket. I want to shout out some more of the viewers that are coming here. Pat, Bernie, Charles, John, Paul, Palmer, and Joe. Thank you for joining us. And uh, like shout out to 
uh, might mess up this, this guy's name. Um, Fafar Michelle, he's uh, shared the live stream to multiple places. Uh, that's that's um, that's my wife, by the way. Oh, oh did, I'm sorry. Did I, did I mess up? Did I mess up uh, her name? It's Fafa Michelle. OK, so yeah. shout out to your wife for, you for sharing it around. Appreciate it. <laughs> and thank you, Steve, for joining us. We're about out of time. Any closing words? Me, I, I think I've, I really enjoyed being here. Hopefully uh, you invite me back and do it again. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I never saw Star Wars. <laughs> well, you've got time, you know, there, there's time. You know, it's not like the assembly district lines, you know, there's, you know, there's no limit on there. You can, you can get at it tonight. You know, I don't know if you've got Disney Plus or not. Um, but, hey, I, uh, I got to watch This Is Us tonight. I got, uh, you know, three episodes left at nine o'clock, so. I have not watched that at all, so I have to admit that. Great show. So that seems to be one of the big things right now. What's ending is three more shows left, and every week something happens, and you know, you know, thirty million Americans, forty million Americans are sitting in their living rooms crying. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, I have, and Mike, you you up on this is us? No, but that sounds like something that could actually make us united again. <laughs> uh, everyone crying together <laughs> yeah it's powerful right emotion is a very powerful thing yeah sure sure so well enjoy you. your Don't shows to subscribe on youtube we have these videos yes. on YouTube now yeah so now we got it we have to do that now yeah yeah like and subscribe <laughs> yeah, the right? hit, bell. hit the bell <laughs> yeah i always see these they hit the bell subscribe like oh my goodness so many instructions yeah yeah so yeah, but definitely appreciate you coming on, Steve. Uh, definitely would love to have you back. You and, got it. Um, Thank you. Enjoy your week. Yes. Catch you all next time. You got it.